1: Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's The Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson.
2: It is Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have each and every one of you here on board every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on our podcast. Everything available at GuyBensonShow.com, which is our online home. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free. Our social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram. If you are new, we extend an especially warm welcome to you. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report with Brett Bayer tonight. That's Fox News Channel in the 6 p.m. hour just after we are off the air here. On the radio side, we are busy today. Byron York will be here later on this hour. Big development in the Durham-Russia investigation and acquittal of Michael Sussman. What does that mean? We'll ask Byron. Juan Williams will be here coming up in our next hour. We will talk about a number of subjects with him, including the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and his advocacy for gun control. We'll get into that. Also in our final hour today, Joe Concha, Fox News contributor and media columnist at The Hill. That is all coming up later on. We begin where we left off, and I hope you did have a restful, recuperative, long weekend. I hope that you were able to enjoy Memorial Day yesterday while also paying homage to those who have fought and died for our freedoms. That's the point of Memorial Day. That's why we have a long weekend that so many of us enjoy with warm weather and barbecues and that sort of thing. Now we're back into the week. We are knocking on the door of the month of June. And... On Friday, we talked, of course, about the biggest story of the week, as we had been for days, that school shooting. And that's how we begin again here, because yesterday some funerals began for these victims. The funeral arrangements and wakes will continue for days. It is gut-wrenching stuff. The Department of Justice is going to open investigation into what happened. They're going to look into every detail. That is at the request, at the invitation of Uvalde's mayor. And I think that we deserve a full accounting. And whether it's state officials or federal officials, I think we need it to be delivered by someone other than the local officials, some of whom made cataclysmically bad decisions during the shooting a week ago. So... I think we should not only welcome but demand those answers. We are also getting fallout about some of those terrible decisions that we were talking about and the ever-changing story over the course of days that we tracked closely here on the show. The Associated Press with a story headlined this, very angry, in quotes, Uvalde locals grapple with school chief's role. The blame for an excruciating delay in killing the gunman at a Texas elementary school, even as parents outside begged police to rush in and panicked children called 911 from inside, has been placed with the school district's homegrown police chief. It's left residents in the small city of Uvalde struggling to reconcile what they know of the well-liked local lawman After the director of state police and others said that the commander at the scene, Pete Arredondo, made, quote, the wrong decision last week not to breach a classroom at Robb Elementary School sooner, believing the gunman was barricaded inside and children weren't at risk. Again, they couldn't have known that. And they had multiple reasons not to believe that at the time. Arredondo who grew up in Uvalde and graduated from high school there, was was set, rather, to be sworn in today to his new spot on the city council after getting elected last month. In fact, it was earlier this month that he got elected. But the mayor of that city, Don McLaughlin, said in a statement yesterday that the meeting would not be happening. It was not immediately clear whether the swearing-in would happen privately or at a later date. I also wonder... Even though he was duly elected, is this the time for someone like this to resign? How can you serve on the city council with this stain on your legacy? And the awful decisions that were made along the way. With those officers, almost 20 of them standing outside two locked classrooms for the better part of an hour. We are hearing from the children and the parents of victims as well the kids in the school the relatives of those who were lost cnn described an interview with one of the kids in cut three this is heartbreaking
0: she told me that she assumed the police just weren't there yet but then afterwards she heard the grown-ups say that the police were there but waiting outside um And that's the first time that she really started crying in the interview. She'd been pretty stoic up until then. um, But that's when she started crying, saying she just didn't understand why they didn't come in and, and get her.
2: I can understand why. That would be incomprehensible to a child. It's incomprehensible to adults. She, this little child, gave the police the benefit of the doubt. They were still on their way. They were coming. Then when she found out, actually, they were just there waiting for a long period of time, that's what caused her to break down. Then there was a father of one of the victims, Alfredo Garza, in cut four, saying what I think a lot of parents weren't just feeling in retrospect, but in real time, as they were being held back by the police. Listen. They needed to act immediately, you know. There's, there's kids involved, you know, there's a gun involved, there's an active shooter wanting to, to do harm. Now, on Friday's show, we talked a little bit about solutions. And I know that there are bipartisan discussions underway on Capitol Hill. There are people trying to figure out what could be realistic. I wrote a piece on Friday at townhall.com listing out a few of the ideas that I would at least be willing in good faith to listen to. And I know it was not going to make anyone happy. Some people would say, oh, it's too many concessions. Other people would say, oh, that's just like, you know, nibbling at the edges. It's not really getting to the core issue, which in a lot of people's minds is just gun control. But I think if we're going to have the types of sober, serious, difficult, compromise-minded conversations that I think are important, as I said on Friday, I wanted to help at least be part of that conversation and put some things on on the table. So it feels like what we do a lot of is taking things off the table. Oh, we won't consider this. No, we won't consider that. No, that won't work. That won't work. Here's a problem with that. Well, you have to do something in terms of having a discussion. You don't just do something in terms of policy for the sake of it, but to have that type of Series of talks, you have to have people willing to listen to certain things with an open mind and consider them carefully. And one of my elements, one of the six ideas that I put on the table, and we went through all six of them on Friday's show. You can go back and listen on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. It was a red flag law provision in Texas. Now, we see this at the state level in More than a dozen states. Florida has one now. There are a few other red states. Indiana is another one. I think they have to be drafted carefully as to not be abused. You have to have prompt due process. You can't just be depriving people of constitutionally protected liberties on the say-so of someone who just said they're concerned when it comes to an individual trying to purchase a firearm. However – I think that it is reasonable to say if someone has some red flags on their file, so to speak, really looking carefully at whether or not that person should be able to buy a gun, I think that's fair game to talk about. We want law-abiding citizens to have their rights protected. We don't want guns in the hands of criminally dangerous people or criminally insane people. As I mentioned, a lot of the time, psychosis starts to set in and manifest itself in the late teens into the early 20s. That's part of the reason why perhaps discussing raising the age of buying rifles in Texas up to 21 versus 18 to get a handgun in Texas, got to be 21, but not a rifle. Could that delay? Could pushing it back to 21 at least allow more time for the red flags to arrive and get flagged? That is at least the argument. I'm not saying there are no counterpoints. I'm not fully embracing that idea, but it's worth thinking about. And I think what is frustrating is seeing over and over again young men, often of a certain age, with lots of concerning things in their background— then committing atrocities and every, everyone sitting around wondering, okay, how did this happen? How was this person able to legally buy a gun? Why was this person not on the radar more? That happens not every time. Again, nothing's perfect. There's no solution that's a catch-all, you know, one-size-fit-all scenario. But in many, many circumstances, it's a similar pattern and a similar profile. And this shooter in Uvalde was one of them. We read to you last week from a Washington Post story that checked through various elements. For example, he was cutting himself, harming himself, cutting himself in the face for fun, he told friends. He would go out and shoot at random people with BB guns. The police were at the house. There is a history of violence and outbursts in a broken family. We learned from a press conference last week that there were text message chains or email chains or Instagram private message chains involving multiple people where the shooter was referred to jokingly or otherwise as a potential school shooter. We've learned more. He was making violent threats against people, including girls. Rape threats. One. One early sign of real problems ahead is when a young person harms animals. That is an early, early indicator of a big problem. I had not seen that reported about this shooter until it finally started to come out. Here was a high school student at Uvalde High School in Cut 39 telling local media, yes, that was also something that this individual had done or was known for. Listen. Prior and I don't see this covered, and I'm going to put this out there. He would hurt animals. He was not a good person. There's an image that has now come out of the shooter, apparently with a bag photographed, with a bag filled with dead cats. I don't know how many more red flags you can think of. Self-harm, run-ins with the police, Violent outbursts, an obsession with guns, associates who thought he might be a threat to shoot up a school, torturing or killing or harming animals, shooting at people randomly with BB guns, threatening rape and other things against fellow students. I mean, the list was basically every item was there. Now, you need to act on that and actually put the red flags into a file for the system to work. But you need that law in place to even have a chance at stopping someone like that. So that's one of the reasons I think there's a growing body of evidence about red flag laws, at least having an opportunity. That's why I'm also in favor of hardening schools and having armed security. At least give people a chance or an opportunity. What I don't like is these big conversations about restrictions or bans that don't really have anything to do with the specifics of any given mass shooting. It just seems like something that should be done. I'm not closed-minded to it necessarily. I'd rather talk about things that could have actually made a difference. Last point. You know, I'll take a break. I'll come back to it here in a second. President Biden keeps weighing in on gun control. Problem is he keeps saying things that are factually wrong – and appeared over the weekend to expand the realm of possibilities in terms of the types of guns he seems to have an appetite to ban, which fuels people's suspicion, right, those suspicions that are out there that maybe they just want to grab a bunch of guns. We'll get to that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back.
1: Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all.
3: The was never absolute. You couldn't buy when the Second Amendment was banned. You couldn't go out and purchase a lot of weapons.
2: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. You can hear there President Biden over the din of his helicopter talking about the Second Amendment, saying you couldn't buy cannons back in the day. Here's the issue: it's actually not true. He says this a lot. You might think it was true. Maybe you think it should have been true, but it has been fact-checked and debunked. Here is GW law professor Jonathan Turley in Cut 10. Today he repeated a clearly false statement about the history of the Second Amendment. Many of us have repeatedly said that his statement that you could not own a cannon or other weapons when the Second Amendment was ratified is untrue. Even the Washington Post admitted it's untrue. And yet the president keeps on repeating that as a defense for his call for gun control. He's undermining his own case
3: by repeating what is, ironically, disinformation.
2: If you want to make a case on some forms of gun control, it is helpful if the president of the United States, who is on your side, is not out there spouting misinformation about the Second Amendment. That does not lend credibility to the overall push. He does himself and his side a disservice, and I think it heightens scrutiny and suspicions of people who don't agree, and I think it's fair for them to have those thoughts. Meanwhile, also a little bit difficult to hear because of the loud noise in the background, but here he is in Cut 33, the president this weekend. A twenty-two
3: caliber bullet will lodge in the lung, and we can probably get it out, we may be able to get it and save the life. A nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high caliber weapons is that there's simply no rational basis for it. In terms of, about self-protection money.
2: hard to hear again there, but he's talking about 22 caliber bullets and then nine millimeters. So we're talking now about handguns, extremely popular handguns. That is very different than the weapons of war that they talk about are assault, rifles. It's a nine millimeter handgun. Is that on the menu here for banning? What is he talking about? And maybe he's just talking out of his rear end. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's sort of like rambling. It, again, does not inspire confidence among people who are trying to make sense of it. And for people who are suspicious and concerned about gun control, this looks like mission creep. And they are, I think, excused in thinking maybe they don't only want to do X, Y or Z. It's a fair point and a fair criticism of President Biden.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
1: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: Back here on the Guy Benson Show. It is Tuesday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free, on demand every day. With us now, Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor, author of the Daily Memo. And, Byron, welcome back.
3: Hi, Guy. Good to be here.
2: Well, you wrote a piece— Entitled What Durham Proved, and I want to ask you about that piece, although it's interesting what he apparently in the eyes of a jury did not prove was that Michael Sussman, this Clinton lawyer, lied to the FBI when he fed anti-Trump dirt, that was not true, to the FBI and told them at the time he was not working for any campaign or client, although he clearly was at the time. That acquittal coming down earlier today, I know that is getting trumpeted across a lot of headlines John Durham, you know, a big initial miss, at least, in trying to bring some accountability on all of this. This lawyer was found not guilty by the jury. What is your read on the implication for the wider investigation? When a, in my mind, fairly open and shut lying to the FBI charge did not result in a conviction. Sort of at the get-go here, sort of the the very lowest bar to clear.
3: Yeah. um, Well, first of all, it it did seem open and shut to you, and it seemed to me, because uh, the question was whether Michael Sussman had lied to the FBI when he told them that when he was uh, trying to feed them this story about Trump, that he wasn't working for any client, and whether he uh, was a lie. And he certainly was working for a client, and he had told uh, James Baker, the FBI general counsel, in writing I'm not working I'm, – I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client. Well, anyway, there it is. So a lot of people talked about uh, the jury pool here in Washington, very left-leaning jury. There were three Clinton donors on it. I mean, the, the case was about Hillary Clinton dirty tricks, and there were three Clinton donors on it. Um, so, But um, the, the fact is, Durham lost the case. And his first case, the Kevin Klein case uh was a pretty small matter. a lawyer i mean it was a lawyer made a serious um offense, but it wasn't that huge a case uh Klein pleaded guilty to it now Durham has lost this uh there's no uh case until the fall when Igor Danchenko, who was the sort of unwitting author of most of the ridiculous. Um, claims in the Steele dossier goes on trial also for lying to the FBI. So what does all this add up to? I think the most important thing is by far the fact that the public has found out more about what was going on. Uh, The public has found out how the at least an arm of the Clinton campaign tried to sort of weaponize the FBI uh, to use them against Donald Trump. Um, the the uh, public has found a, a lot more about uh, the dossier and how just absolutely, laughably false it was, even as it sort of turned American politics upside down for a while. So um, if Durham never got another conviction, we have learned a lot from him.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And we had Andy McCarthy on this show late last week, and he seemed to be thinking that it had been a rough few days for the prosecution and that Sussman's defense team was pretty likely to prevail. He thought that they were muddying the waters enough in terms of you know, how much was the FBI being forthcoming in some of this. So it seems like maybe some obfuscation on the part of multiple individuals or entities contributed to this not guilty verdict. I think there are some frustrated folks out there, Byron, thinking, OK, we're learning more. But if no one's really ever held accountable, then what does it matter? We, we might get a big, fairly damning report from Durham at the end of all this. I would not be surprised by that at all. Is that unto itself a form of accountability if no one really is held specifically accountable? Or are there other forms of accountability beyond you know convictions and that sort of thing? Because we know from this trial specifically that Hillary Clinton individually, personally greenlit – the spreading of some misinformation about Trump. That was what her former campaign manager admitted under oath. I mean, that is interesting and worthwhile information. I guess folks are just asking themselves, does that lead to anything? Does that get us anywhere?
3: Well, I think that public exposure is a form of accountability. As a matter of fact, I think um, in the past, um, we have sought, certainly partisans on either side have sought, too much to see the other guy go to jail uh, Mm -hmm. for what he did, as opposed to being exposed. I think more will be exposed. I believe that Durham is actually required to write a report. He was instructed to do so by Bill Barr, the um, Trump attorney general who appointed him. So, I mean, that's going to be the big thing is the Durham report. But, you know, in terms of people going to jail, um, I mean, the you know, did George Papadopoulos need to go to jail for however long he did, 14 days or something like that? I, I, I don't think so. But um, I think it's it's good to find out what people did.
2: Meanwhile, Byron, I want to ask you about Politico's story today in Playbook saying inside Biden's June pivot to the economy. So we're getting a lot of excitement in the Beltway and on – Twitter and on cable news about this big pivot that the Biden folks are going to make in the next few days. They're all out there trying to get out front saying, look, the economy is actually good in a number of respects, and we're not getting enough credit for that. So they want to turn that conversation around, it sounds like, a little bit. They want to maybe flip the script a little bit. And look, there's a few different things that you can say about that. I'll have a lot more to say about it later in the show. I think some of the positive things happening in the economy are happening despite the Biden administration and their policies and happening because of leadership of conservative governors, for example. It's also hard to make an argument to the American people. Actually, things are way better than you think if that's not what they're feeling. But Biden has an op ed in The Wall Street Journal today saying, you know, look, things aren't really so bad and I've got a plan. They are clearly trying to at least move the needle a little bit on the economy, which is currently really dragging down the president and his party. What do you make of this?
3: Well, I I had to laugh a little bit at the idea of of, of Biden pivoting to the economy. Um, You're right. That's what they say they're doing. Uh, Politico said the purpose of the June pivot appears threefold. And the first uh, fold is to convince Skeptical voters that despite their current misgivings, the economy is actually doing quite well. I think this is an impossible task. You won't convince them uh, because they go to the grocery store and they think, well, how much was that? About $60 worth? No, it was $120 worth. Um, that just happened. So um, you're not going to convince them that the economy is going well. Inflation is something that poisons uh, the view of of most Americans who actually have to go and buy things, so right. uh, which is most Americans. So, right. I, I, listen, I think it's an impossible task.
2: I think that's right. And you can have people employed. We have very low unemployment, which is good. You can have people even nominally getting wage gains. But if they're working and getting less bang for their buck for what they're earning – on virtually every front as they buy food or gas or what have you, it's really difficult to convince people that their lived experience, to use a phrase that they love on the left, their lived experience is actually all wrong. And they're, they're missing the real point. Uh, that's not really a winning strategy. And, Byron, look, I get it. It is not fair ever to blame a president or credit a president for everything going wrong. And gas prices can become a political football, and there are a lot of factors outside of a president's control. And that's true of Joe Biden. It was true of of Republican presidents. It will be true in the future as well. However, there are policies right now from the Biden administration, their words and their actions sort of align to evince a deep hostility to American energy production here at home. That is a policy and a posture that has consequence over. A long period of time over a big time horizon, and it can feel especially painful when some of the things that they oppose and have been blocking have been blocked for as long as they have and where people are feeling that squeeze. So I think there's a lot of fair criticisms of them as well. I was just driving yesterday back from uh, the the river house of a, a friend of ours, and I was ready to get on to – I believe it was a 395 I was in Virginia – And there was a gas station just off of that highway as we were preparing to turn onto the highway. And I looked at the gas station sign and I did a literal double take because the most expensive premium gas was just over six dollars a gallon. I don't think I'd ever seen that with my own two eyes before. And I just think, Byron, to your point, it's awfully hard to have the president write an op ed in The Wall Street Journal To say, oh, yes, well, look, to be sure there are some problems, but, you know, let's try to dial up the gratitude for all the things going well. I just don't think that that washes.
3: And and what you're saying uh, about specifically gas is important because if you have a situation where the price of gas goes up for a number of reasons, including uh, uncertainty created by uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, if you have you you should have an American administration that wants to produce as much American energy as possible. And this is just the opposite. And we know that we, we you know, the Biden administration came into office um, this dedicated to trying to reduce America's uh, dependence on and production of uh, fossil fuels to reduce it. And to subsidize people into buying electric cars and to, and to do, do all that. And even to get away from uh, natural use of natural gas, which in terms of energy production has been the one thing that has reduced carbon emissions more than anything else in the United States. So the, the, the administration just can't say that they're doing everything they can to reduce uh, gas prices because they haven't.
2: Right. And they're sort of proud of it. Right. When they talk proudly and boldly about and Biden said it himself, this incredible transition. He's talking about a transition away from fossil fuels. That is a stated goal from his campaign. I know Trump would play some of the clips. At his rallies, they put him up on the jumbotron. This is what Biden said about uh, natural you know, energy sources in the United States and energy production. And the Biden people said, no, no, that's that's not what we intend to do. Of course, we want to do, uh, you know, to modernize things and eventually get there. But, we, you know, we're, they were doing a lot of denying. And now here we are. And it seems like their words very much line up with the actions. And he's continued to say this sort of thing. And you can't just erase those contributions to the discourse because they are politically inconvenient. I think they are politically quite relevant. And that's part of the pickle that the Democrats are in right now. And finally, on that score, Byron, I'll ask you about the Cook Political Report, which is this nonpartisan prognostication group. They look at the governors and Senate and House races around the country, and they make their projections each election. And they continue to update those projections over the course of a cycle. They have updated their expectations to be even more dire for Democrats. They expect now Republicans to gain between 20 and 35 seats in the House in November. And they are saying that there are some seats where Joe Biden in that district won by 10 to 15 points that might be on the board now, at least competitive in November. That at least speaks to an environment that is deteriorating for the party in power, not improving.
3: Yeah, everything we've just been talking about uh, leads up to Democrats losing even more seats in November. Now, I think what you're seeing is um, a lot of straw grasping right now on the part of Democrats um, who hope that um, a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe would backfire on Republicans and bring some support to Democrats. They also hope to use the gun issue After Buffalo and Uvalde, the the gun issue against Republicans, Uh, but the things we start we've been talking about this whole uh, session here with the price of gas, price of energy, the price of groceries. These things are incredibly important and incredibly fundamental. And I just it is impossible for me to imagine. And you can convince me later if it happens. Impossible to me to imagine that you can have. 8 percent inflation after a, a very long period of extremely low inflation and have voters just say, "Okay, we'll keep the guys who are in power in power.
2: Byron York is chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, where he writes the Daily Memo. He's also a Fox News contributor. Byron, thank you.
3: Thank you, Guy. Enjoy it. We will take a quick
2: break. We will be right back. Something just emerged from the White House press conference. On the Uvalde school shooting, something that the White House appears to be ruling out. Wow, wait till you hear this sound bite coming up.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
2: As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, before the break, I mentioned some news out of the White House press briefing. Corrine Jean-Pierre is the new press secretary, and she was asked about some of the proposals. We were discussing this on the show last week. Some of the proposals out there that could be part of a suite of ideas, a suite of policies that could maybe help prevent future mass shootings at schools. One of them involves more security At schools, hardening schools a bit. And exactly what that would look like would be up for debate, I would imagine. But it sounded like the president's spokesperson said that the president is just opposed to that completely. Listen to Cut 40. This was minutes ago.
4: I don't know what he said specifically about about schools. I know there's been uh, conversation about hardening schools. That is not something that he believes in. He believes that we should be able to, to give uh, teachers the resources to be able to do the job uh, that they're meant to do at schools.
2: Uh, is she conflating issues here? These are not mutually exclusive things. It's like she went back to the... Talking point about more resources for teachers at schools, totally setting aside the public safety question. Now, how much money have we sent to schools in the last couple of years? A lot of the schools that were closed for a year and a half. I think the argument that schools are under resourced is, especially these days, not really supported by the facts. But it's a typical talking point. Now, let's get the teachers what they need in the classroom. OK, fine. That is a very different question Then how do we protect students from mass shooters? And she just kind of weirdly there pivoted off to this more money for schools talking point, but apparently not more money for schools if it comes to. Hardening those schools against mass shooters or security for schools. I don't think that having an armed guard at every school is a perfect solution. As we saw in Parkland. It certainly could have helped in Uvalde. The armed guard wasn't there when the shooting began. I've shared examples on the air of school resource officers armed who have thwarted or cut short school shootings. We've gone through some of those examples. Having some good guys with a gun at least gives defenseless children some semblance of a fighting chance. And maybe some other security protocols like trying to... Not have doors propped open, for example, allowing intruders to get in undetected. Those things might help a little bit. But Jean-Pierre says the president does not believe in those things. This is what I was talking about. It's like taking things off the table. Are you taking that off the table? I don't know how you defend that. Maybe we'll need a walk back of the press secretary like we get from the president or of the president so often. Another hour coming up.
1: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
2: Welcome into a new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Our middle of three hours, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free, always on demand to all of you shortly after the show ends, just after 6 p.m. Eastern. And around that same time, I will be gearing up for special report tonight, joining the panel with Brett Bayer, That's Fox News Channel, 6 p.m. hour Eastern time. Hope to see you there. You can also set your DVRs. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The roller coaster ride continues. The Dow closing down. Two hundred and twenty-two points today, ending the day at thirty-two thousand nine ninety. And with us now is Juan Williams, Fox News analyst, columnist at The Hill, and a best-selling author of multiple books. Juan, welcome back to the show.
5: What a pleasure to be with you, Guy. Feels like summertime. Time for Guy Benson.
2: That's exactly right. Although I'm my favorite. Season, I have to tell you one, is fall. I'm a fall guy, but I'm also someone who really enjoys four distinct seasons, which is why, with all due respect to people who live in parts of the country, like Southern California, where it's like good weather all the time, or very similar weather, I like, you know, the the whole thing. Winter, spring, summer, fall, I like to experience each of them.
5: Yeah, I do too. I think... The one thing I would point out because I'm so similar to you but I just think for you should know I think when they mess with the clocks and then I get less sunlight I do think it impacts me. What do they call it seasonal disorder yes, sad,
2: like right? Effective affective disorder something like that. Sad, right. SAD. So I
5: like sunlight, I do.
2: So, maybe when they do daylight savings time and you move back, does that lift your spirits?
5: Well, yes. I mean, you know, you and I live in similar worlds, and so like when I get off, and I used to get off around six, seven. If it was dark out, I would be like, oh, uh, I missed the day." But if I get out and it's light, I feel like I still got some. I got some life in me. I, you know, energy. Go do something. Yeah, the you know? day isn't over. Right.
2: Yeah. No, I get that. I, I think that's fair, and we can get into the whole discussion about whether we should. Get rid of those time changes. That's a discussion that happens every year on Capitol Hill. And uh, my guess is we'll probably talk about it for a long time. I'm not sure if the change will ever happen. Juan, I want to pick your brain on a couple different things here today. There's a story in Politico, just a reaction from you. The headline is Biden sees exodus of black staffers and some frustration among those who remain. The sub headline is The White House is historically diverse, but there are concerns internally about a wave of departures and the current culture. And here's how the story begins. At least 21 black staffers have left the White House since late last year or are planning to leave soon. Some of those who remain say it's no wonder why. They describe a work environment with little support from their superiors and even fewer chances for promotion. I just wonder what you make of that, and do you think this is sort of like a, Tempest in a Teacup story in Washington DC or is, does this maybe have legs?
5: I don't think so. I read the story myself because it caught my eye, uh especially given, you know, the Biden effort to make an impression on the black community. Appointment of a black female Supreme Court justice, you got a black press secretary historic again first time. Uh, you know, over at the Federal Reserve, you now have a black woman. I mean, lots of things like that that just stand out, uh, even a black man at EPA. So I was reading to see, well, maybe something is off at the White House, because, you know, recently I've noticed that there were a number of people leaving. So it, it, it confirmed something that I just was kind of picking up in the ether. But then when I read the story, there were lots of people, including two of whom I personally know, who said? You know, it was time for me to go. You know, I had a good time, but I didn't. I don't intend to stay here for all time. and, You know, go through what comes potentially next. It looks like, if history is true, that Republicans will take control of the House in the fall, and then it's going to be more like a combat atmosphere over there. Uh, so people feel, especially at this juncture, like they've had a good ride for now. You know, if it's, if you're going to go, let's go now. The other thing I noticed, guy, and I got to say that this was a surprise to me is or no surprise to me, is that, you know, the White House is a competitive, highly competitive environment. So they didn't say, oh, here's the number of white people that are leaving uh, or who felt, you know what, there's sharp elbows around here or you can't get the attention from the chief of staff that you think you deserve because you think you're the smartest, you know, nice sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, that goes on in highly competitive American corporate and political environments, and sometimes you're going to get your toe stepped on. There was never any suggestion, I thought, of racism, of people being intentionally marginalized or slighted. But, you know, I'm not in there, but from what I can tell from what I hear from people who are in there, that story is not exactly right. It's a little bit overblown.
2: Yeah, and maybe it's not really... A racial story at all. I mean, it almost seems like there's a racial angle looking for a race story that might not, for the reasons that you just said, be a race story. And I wonder if that's a reflection on the people who seeded the story. Maybe some people are trying to make it racial. They're they're annoyed that they haven't gone further or have been promoted the way they want. So they're going to the racial excuse or maybe it was, you know, from the journalism side saying, hey, we've noticed this demographic of people, these people off the top of our heads. Uh, Could there be something going on here? Let's start with the premise and go from there. I don't know. Maybe it's not really about race, which would actually kind of be refreshing, even though the whole story is framed through the prism of race.
5: Yeah, I think. Well, again, you know, when you look at it, you don't know exactly what the traffic is like among white people. But my sense is and again, I think the reporters were right to pick up on it, because I picked up on it. I just didn't—I wasn't at the point where I was going to call it out, because I, did, I didn't know. But they did some reporting, and they come back and say, look at this number who are leaving or about to leave. And, mm. you know, but that, but then they make it seem like it's a rush for the doors and Exodus, and I'm not sure that's true. I don't—from I from, from people I know, and even the quotes in the story— They never get anybody to say, oh, yeah, you know, I was treated so badly because of my race or nothing like that. I don't see that.
2: Juan, I also want to ask you about the atrocity in Uvalde, Texas, a week ago. Uh, We've talked about it here every single day since. I know that you and I, or I, I should say I would guess that you and I probably agree on some sentiments and probably disagree on others. But we like having people who have different viewpoints on this show And so I'm just wondering how you're feeling about it, what you're thinking about it, in terms of just the reflection and then on potential solutions.
5: Wow. Nobody ever asked me that question before. But if you're asking me, I'll tell you. uh, You know, I'm a father and grandfather, and I'm the grandfather of twin girls who are in the fourth grade. So, um, Guy, as my friend, I think that if you know that if something happened to those little girls, you would have to call me up or come over and you'd say, Juan, take it easy you know life go, but it would be, you would understand the depth of my grief mm-hmm. and so i i just you know i just can't imagine can't imagine okay so let's move on uh and get to the policy angle which is you know about guns and gun control and all the rest and even an upcoming supreme court ruling on whether or not you can walk around with a gun um in public so my sense is that you know what i hear from both the republican and democratic side uh, senator Cornyn, uh, following kind of you know instructions coming from Senator McConnell, uh... the, the uh, leader of the Republicans in the Senate, and Senator Murphy on the Democratic side, the senator who was the congressman from the district that included Newtown back in 2012 when that terror terrible slaughter of children happened, um, they apparently are working on something. Now I got to tell you, guy, I'm not optimistic that it's going to be much. But what they're talking about are things like red flag laws that would say if somebody is mentally incompetent or violent, you know, that you can go to a judge and try to get the judge to take away that person's guns. Uh, We know about cases where people subsequently, even after the guns are taken away, go and buy more guns, but it would be something. And then you have the idea, uh, especially from the Republican side, of paying attention to mental health in this country in a big way and giving more resources to mental health care. And I think everybody could get behind that. Then you have things that are more marginal background checks for gun sales. Any transaction of a gun being handed from one person to another, potentially even within a family, that there would have to be some background check it would have to go through. And finally, maybe, you know, people who are 18, which is the case of the last two Buffalo and Uvalde, people who are 18 shouldn't be able to just walk in. This guy walked in and bought two. Assault-style weapons, 350 rounds of ammunition, body armor. Nobody said a word. I mean, why? 18 years old. I don't know about you guys. I was a pretty erratic character. I was good in school, but goodness gracious, you wouldn't. I, why would you be giving me a gun?
2: Well, I mean, I think, look, it's a fair point. I'm, I'm open to the discussion of maybe raising the age to 21. A counterpoint would be we give 16-year-olds cars.
5: There, that's that, yeah. But I, I think that there's a real purpose. A 16 year old can drive to work.
2: Yeah, no, I get that. You would say, well, a 16 year old might want to hunt, or an 18 year old might want to defend him or herself. There are counterpoints. I, I get, I get both sides of that particular idea that you just raised. If you could get some combination, you just went through, I think, four of them. Some combination of those things. Do you think that would be? a hopeful sign to you do you think it would be there's no perfect solution to any of this would it at least be something or do you think it would be insufficient would you like to see things go go further perhaps
5: oh well yeah i would like to see things go further but i don't, and look i'm talking about what's reasonable and i think that what we're dealing with you know is a situation politically that is so deeply polarizing, right? you know, and here I would point to the NRA and years of rhetoric and even people more radical in the NRA that say that any, any effort to try to regulate guns is an effort to take away your guns. Um, and so what we're locked into in terms of the political consequences is that gun owners are people who vote on that issue, lots of people who are supportive of gun regulation are not people who are single-issue voters, and so, you know, if, you're, if you get an A from the NRA on the scorecard, it means a lot to gun owners. Right. There's, an, there's, an intensity, there's an intensity,
2: there's an intensity yeah. imbalance in some cases on that issue. I also would say if the NRA—this is not an original thought to me—if the NRA went away completely tomorrow and the gun lobby ceased to exist, I still think it would be a very potent issue because people care about it. It's not like you know robots are just obeying the n r a for money. This is something that matters to a lot of voters, Juan, so I, I think that probably you know plays into this whole debate, perhaps more than some people are comfortable admitting. We still are where we are in terms of that national discussion and what might actually occur or you know might not occur. I guess we'll see. I'm wondering when you hear about, for example, Comments made by President Biden over the weekend where he was talking about nine millimeters, which are handguns, which seems to broaden out the conversation. Uh, It was unclear exactly what he was talking about, but it's not, I think, unreasonable for someone to hear what he said and say, oh, gosh, is he talking about handguns now taking away handguns? Better O'Rourke is running for governor down in Texas. He said on the debate stage running for president. Hell, yes, I want to confiscate. AR15s. And now he's sort of backing away from that. I'm just not sure it's that crazy or conspiratorial for some people to listen to some of these things and say, well maybe, you know, they'll talk about common sense measures at the margins, but ultimately what they want to do is take guns away. There's at least some evidence I think backing that up. Is that a fair point for second amendment supporters to make?
5: Well, no. Look, I uh, yes, let me think about it. You know, I don't want to just kind of give you a rapid response. I want to think about it. I think there are lots of people, according to the polls, who feel like we've got too many guns in this country and that it's unregulated. And it would be good to put in place, certainly the background checks. Certainly a majority of Americans feel that way, including, according to the polls, a majority of gun owners. So that's not unreasonable. It's also not unreasonable to talk about these Weapons that are used in war; these kind of you know assault type weapons.
2: Right. Now, well, I at least look—they look like them. And I, and I would just say one: it's it's not that they are totally unregulated. We have lots of gun regulations in this country. The question is, do we need more of them? And there are folks, as you point out, who say any additional regulation is just moving towards the ultimate goal, which is banning or confiscating guns. Other people say that's totally not true. This is where we would stop, and why. And I think there's a lot of mistrust. I think that mistrust has been fueled by what some political actors have said and done over the years. And then folks like you and me are are here trying to sort of make sense of it. And I do appreciate having these conversations, Juan. We are up on a break. Even when we agree or disagree, I think it's important uh, to have the discussion. Juan Williams, Fox News analyst. Juan, always appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Guy. You bet. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back a big story from NBC News that I want to respond to next. Thanks for tuning in. I am Guy Benson from Washington, D.C. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free every day. I want to react to a story that is getting a lot of play on social media today from NBC News. Headline, Inside a Biden White House Adrift. And it's a pretty deep dive ...into a lot of the problems that this administration is facing and their reaction internally to those problems. And the entire piece, when you read through it, it strikes me as both a sympathetic spin job for the White House and also, which might seem counterintuitive, an absolute indictment that's pretty devastating of this administration... So it starts off by explaining that the president himself is rattled by low approval numbers and he's confounded by some of them within certain demographics. He is briefed routinely on these polls, by the way, at a press conference. He doesn't answer a lot of questions, but at a press conference a number of weeks ago, he was asked about polling. He said he doesn't look at the polls at all. He said that's not a joke. One of his favorite things to say. That's no joke. Well, maybe it is not a joke, but it's more of an old fashioned political lie. Because he is briefed regularly on polling and he is upset by the polling that he's seeing. So he can say he's not looking at it. We know he's looking at it and is actually kind of obsessed with it. His approval rating is, according to quite a few of these surveys, lower than Donald Trump's at this point of the presidency. And he cannot Accept that or wrap his brain around that. So he's rattled, is the quote in the story, and he's looking around, casting about for a better messaging strategy. And here's the thing. Messaging is not the problem for Joe Biden and his team. It is a problem, but it is not the problem. The problem is results. The problem is the way he has approached the presidency compared to the way that he campaigned. In short, his problem, their problem is reality. So this NBC story gets pretty juicy and has a lot of quotes, a lot of them anonymous. And the president's angry and bitter and frustrated and confused. And we will walk through the story. I want to rebut it piece by piece. And we'll do that as soon as we come back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
1: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
2: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, NBC News with a big story today inside a Biden White House adrift. And we are responding to it bit by bit here on the show today. The story goes through and talks about a bunch of different crises that have piled up. They don't mention immigration in the story, even though that is near the top of the list, I think, for many Americans. And they say increasingly the administration looks, quote, flat-footed. But, again, I don't really think the problem here is that they aren't anticipating these crises so much as they are causing the crises or exacerbating the crises. That is the crux of the problem. We played the soundbite recently of the new press secretary, Ms. Jean-Pierre, being asked by our colleague Peter Ducey, how is raising taxes on businesses and job creators going to reduce costs or reduce inflation for consumers? And she launched into a truly incoherent, unresponsive, rambling answer that touched on everything from climate change to collective bargaining. It was a wild ride. There was no answer there. You can say that's a messaging problem, which is part of it. The real issue is there is no good answer to that question. It's the policy. It's what they're doing. That's the problem. The story also suggests that maybe a shakeup is on the way within the West Wing. And this is what you get sometimes in a failing administration. Oh, we got to turn over some of the staff. By the way, that's worked beautifully for the vice president, hasn't it? You can't even call her turnover a shakeup because the shaking has never stopped in the vice president's office. It's just a merry-go-round over there. But around the president, there hasn't been that much turnover. One discussion is should Ron Klain, the chief of staff, go? And he's apparently talking about leaving maybe sometime early next year. He's the chief of staff who spends a lot of his time seemingly on Twitter. He spends just as much time on Twitter as Trump used to, it would seem. He's always on there, which seems like maybe could be part of the problem. That's just what I think. Just a guess. One person who is being mentioned as a potential replacement is a woman named Anita Dunn, who used to work for Obama. She famously said that Fox News should not be treated like a news organization, tried to freeze us out of White House events, and fortunately the other networks and other outlets stood up for us. That was back under Obama. She bounces in and out of public life. She's got this pipeline apparently with Obama world and Biden world where she just shows up all the time. Then she goes back and makes some money in the private sector. Then she comes back. To the White House, already this NBC story is talking about how exciting it would be for her to be a female chief of staff. No woman or person of color has ever been White House chief of staff since the position was created after World War II. That's what the NBC story says. I know that the administration loves to talk about their historic diversity in this first or that first. I think the obsession on that, sort of the optics – versus the actual outcomes and performance, I would suggest to you, could be part of their problem. But we know that the press is addicted to it. The Democratic base is addicted to it. And so here, even in this story where they're talking about, gosh, all these problems for Biden, they're like, well, maybe the next person will be historic in this position. The question is, would she be better than Ron Klein? I don't know. What I can tell you is her most recent claim to fame Was leaving public life, going back into the private sector and leading that group for, what, six months where they did research, deep public opinion research into how to frame things better. And they came up with ultra MAGA. That stupid talking point was the work of Anita Dunn. So that might be your next White House chief of staff. I'm sure that would be a game changer. Then you get to this part of the NBC story. Just listen to how sort of sympathetic this spin is. But I also think it's self-defeating. Quote, any assessment of Biden's performance needs to take into account the epic challenges he faced from the start. then they quote one of these historians who says, oh, there's just been this perfect storm of crises. With all the daunting challenges inherited by Joe Biden. And the historian jokes, what's next, locusts? Story says Biden wonders the same thing. Quote, I've heard him say recently that he used to say about President Obama's tenure that everything landed on his desk but locusts. And now he understands how that feels, a White House official said. Okay, Biden, yes, inherited problems. Every president inherits problems. Some of those problems are worse. Some of them are more manageable, but everyone inherits something that is unhelpful or problematic or difficult or challenging. The thing is, Joe Biden campaigned as the guy who would fix this. His argument to voters was I have the experience to do what is necessary to get this done. We're going to be competent, we're going to be reliable. We're familiar. We're going to undo all the damage of Donald Trump. We can fix this. Hire us. He wanted the job. He got the job. And in some ways, what he inherited was an America that was poised to be on the upswing. Vaccines like a million a day were going into arms by the time Biden took office, despite that recent tweet from the White House, which claimed that there were no vaccines when Biden took office. Totally untrue. There were three. Biden himself had been double vaxxed by the time he took office. Again, a million shots a day. You had an economy just waiting to rebound to the pre-pandemic strong footing that it was on before the economy got shut down. There had been immigration problems. The Trump people had figured out some ways to get a handle on that. And some people have said Biden could have really come close to doing nothing on some of these fronts and actually done better than his attempts at doing something. They mismanaged pandemic spending, which is why we now have the White House for weeks, months, saying, oh, we're out of money. We spent $6 trillion, but on the core services like vaccines and treatments and testing, we're out of money. That is scandalous mismanagement. They were complicit in the closing of schools in many parts of this country for a year and a half. They bowed to the teachers' unions. They allowed the science, quote unquote, to be altered by the teachers unions based on junk science, based on politics. Biden enabled that. He didn't stand up to it. He is responsible for a lot of harm done to a lot of students. They overheated the economy with a ton of reckless, wasteful, inflationary spending that some of their own economists were warning. Don't do it. We've got a problem coming. We've got a problem brewing already. Don't pour trillions of dollars onto the fire. And the Biden White House ignored those people, ignored those voices, did it anyway. Two trillion more dollars, extremely wasteful party line only. And they wanted five trillion more and they almost got it. A vote or two away in the Senate. They have turbocharged the border crisis every single step of the way. Reversing successful policies just because they had Trump's name on those policies. The disgrace in Afghanistan was self-inflicted. Whether you agree or not with the idea of getting America out of Afghanistan, it could be done well or not well. And he did it, I think it is very fair to say, about as poorly as you could imagine. Breaking a ton of promises to a lot of people, including Americans in danger in that country. You talk about the Ukraine crisis, you wonder if Vladimir Putin miscalculated based on America's weakness and broken promises in Afghanistan. So the story today at NBC goes on, quote, amid a rolling series of calamities, Biden's feeling lately is that he just can't catch a break. Biden is frustrated. If it's not one thing, it's another, said a person close to the president. It's like he's pretending he's some sort of bystander, an unlucky bystander who just has all these difficult things befalling him. It's out of his control. It's all so unfair. The problem is poll after poll shows that the American people believe that Joe Biden's policies and decisions and actions as president are making things worse because they are. He's not helping. He's harming. He's the president of the United States. It's not just a bunch of tough breaks. You get tough breaks, you get good breaks. He's had a few things break okay for him. Overall, though, the American people aren't impressed. And this whole woe is me thing, I think, is very tough to swallow. You asked for the toughest job in the world. You said you were going to save us from Trump and all this other stuff. And now what? How's that gone? How are the promises looking? Well, I think the approval numbers that he's obsessed with speak for themselves, and they're telling the story on that. I got a break, but when we come back, I want to land the plane on this overall topic. One of the parts of this NBC News report that is getting the most attention, Biden feels like his team is undermining him with walkbacks. Is he right? Who's to blame for that? More after this.
1: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
2: We are back on The Guy Benson Show, leaning into this monologue here on the program. Thanks for tuning in. Now, here's a big passage that a lot of people are talking about from the NBC story. Quote, beyond policy, Biden is unhappy about a pattern that has developed inside the West Wing. He makes a clear and succinct statement only to have aides rush to explain that he actually meant something else. The so-called cleanup campaign, he has told his advisors." undermines him and smothers the authenticity that fueled his rise worse it feeds a republican talking point that he's not fully in command see to me that's not worse what's worse is the president being really bad at his job saying a bunch of stuff and then his team having to mop up after him time after time after time confusing our allies emboldening our enemies that's worse than a republican talking point getting fueled but i guess in the mind Of NBC News and certainly of the Democrats, the worst thing is, oh, it's making this Republican talking point seem correct. The talking point seems correct because it is correct. This is, again, the reality problem that this president has. The issue came to a head when Biden ad libbed during a speech in Poland that Russian President Vladimir Putin, quote, cannot remain in power. Within minutes, Biden's aides tried to walk back his comments, saying he hadn't called for Putin's removal and that the U.S. policy was unchanged. Biden was furious that his remarks were being seen as unreliable. Arguing that he speaks genuinely and reminding his staff that he's the one who is president. Asked about the staff's practice of clarifying Biden's remarks, the official said, quote, we don't say anything that the president doesn't want us to say. Okay. Remember on his trip To Eastern Europe and that surrounding area in the neighborhood of Ukraine, there were three or four examples of Biden saying things, not just the Poland speech that we just read about, but a few others, things that he said about U.S. troops in Ukraine, about responding in kind with chemical weapons. Remember that one where they had to walk those things back. In the last nine months, he has talked about defending Taiwan militarily three times and three times they've walked it back. Just yesterday, there was another walk back about rockets for Ukraine that Biden said we weren't going to do something and the White House said, well, actually, a decision has not been made. If Biden feels like his team around him is undermining him because he is setting new, dramatic American foreign policy in his statements and they are then undercutting it, then he should fire people. The people doing the undermining and the walk backing should be packing and walking out of the White House. But he's not firing anyone. Because I think what's actually happening here is he's screwing up. And they're cleaning up. They tell him that they're going to clean it up. He agrees to it. And then he sort of stews about the fact that this had to happen at all. And he feels weak because of it. And notice at the end of that passage I just read, there's a walk back of the frustration about the walk backs. So Biden's telling people, oh. I'm the one who's president here. I'm sick and tired of making clear statements. Then you people go out and undermine me by walking it back. And then they get an unnamed official at the White House saying, oh, we don't say anything the president doesn't want us to say. So they're mopping up his anger about the mop ups. It's like walk back inception. Now, if he wanted to really get his message out and really clarify it, and really put a finer point on it, he could do An extended sit-down interview with any journalist and subject himself to sustained questioning. But today is day 111 in a row that he has not done an interview with a journalist. He'll answer questions here or there or press conferences and it's like sort of quick shouted questions, not the back and forth with follow-ups and depth. Hasn't done that since February. We're on the doorstep of June. Then we get more whining in the NBC story. Biden has vented to aides about not getting credit from Americans or the news media for actions he believes have helped the country, particularly on the economy. Biden grouses that Republicans aren't getting their share of the blame for legislative gridlock in Congress. Now, here's the thing. I feel like you have to just keep coming back to this. The idea that the media is against him is hilarious. The idea that Americans are not giving him enough credit is hilarious. They're not in a credit-giving mood because they're living through their current experience. Again, once again, the reality problem we're as its had. You can say, oh, well, unemployment is down and wages are up. Okay, if that's all getting wiped out, by massive inflation and people are driving around seeing to fill up their tanks, it'll be 5 $6 a gallon. They might not be tripping over themselves to express their deep gratitude to the people in charge. And by the way, the people in charge are all Democrats in Washington. Biden's mad that Republicans aren't getting their share of the blame. Democrats control everything in Washington, D.C. To the extent that Biden wants credit for things that are going better in certain areas of the economy, and they are, What he doesn't want to say is those are being led. The tip of the spear of the progress is in red states pursuing the types of policies that he, Biden, opposes and demagogues all the time. It's the Greg Abbott's and Ron DeSantis of the world leading the way on that stuff. Biden wants that credit, but he doesn't want any of the blame. He's like, well, why aren't the Republicans getting blamed? They're out of power. You guys won. You guys have the presidency and the Senate. And the House, maybe not for long, but you've got it. And on some of these big failures, it's not because Republicans are obstructing. It's because Democrats can't even get to 50 votes. On some of these terrible ideas, by the way, that would make things worse. And Biden just can't get over the unfairness of it all. I'll leave you with this quote. It's from a senior advisor to Bernie Sanders talking about the situation that the Democrats are in because the NBC story is talking about how the White House and Democrats are concerned about the track of the country. And this advisor says, quote, we're on a track, a losing track. That sounds about right to me. And poor Joe Biden, the innocent, misunderstood, unlucky bystander, is really the victim in all of this sure good luck with that final hour of the guy benson show coming up
1: It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy
2: Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show today, our final hour. Thank you. For tuning in. GuyBensonshow dot com is our website. GuyBensonshow.com. The podcast is free every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm on the panel with Brett Bayer and company. That's in the six PM hour Eastern time, just after we get off the air here. Fox News Channel. See you there. At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter handle and our Instagram account. Follow us on both, if you would, at Guy Benson Show. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink which sort of helped sponsor the big, long weekend barbecue that we hosted at our house, a party on Saturday, which lasted about 11 hours from the first person arriving to the last person leaving, and Long Drink sent us a lot of product. We had a little over 100 cans, and I have to report that they were all gone I believe by the time the sun went down, they were just swarmed by our guests. I only had maybe two, but it was popular. It was delicious. We had a great time, a really fun crew. More on that probably tomorrow when producer Christine is back here on the show. But they sponsor our happy hour. Their website is thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. They're expanding all over the country Upwards of 40 states now, thelongdrink.com. Joining us is Joe Concha, Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill. Joe, good to have you back.
4: Hey, Guy, Did was Paul Pelosi at your party, and did you call him an Oh, Uber? my gosh.
2: Oh, my gosh. So, all right, let's talk about this. Nancy Pelosi's husband, I guess, allegedly had a few drinks in Napa, Northern California, and I guess drove himself home. Home And there was an incident with the police. I saw the speaker's office put out some quick terse statements saying basically she was on the East Coast. She had nothing to do with this. So I guess some political spouses things do matter if it's Clarence Thomas doesn't matter if it's Nancy Pelosi. I saw something about some statement that Pelosi's attorney issued kind of denying some of it partially. What happened here?
4: A lot going on. First, the, the uh, speaker's office put out a statement saying that uh, we're not commenting on this private matter, <laughs> private matter. The, the guy at 82 years old drove a Porsche through a stop sign and got into a crash with another car. People could have been seriously hurt or killed. Uh, so it's a story. You can't just say it's a private matter and th- leave us alone. It, I don't think it quite works that way. You can only imagine, let's say, if uh, Jared Kushner uh, was involved in, in this where he got a DUI and he was in a crash or Donald Trump Jr. The, the coverage would be through the roof. Uh, but now we're also um, seeing statements saying that, well, the reports aren't accurate. Well, all right, it's a number. Either he was above a certain blood alcohol content level or he was below a certain blood alcohol content level like Guy Benson was at his party where he somehow only had two long drinks at 11 hours. How is that possible, well, man? They're like, Evan yeah, well, and you have on. one,
2: you're going to have more? To, to clarify, I only had, I think, two long drinks, but we also had a keg of beer. Okay. We also had wine and champagne. There were many other options. Also, I wasn't going anywhere. Right. I did not leave the house. I was certainly not driving. And the thing is, look, I'm perfectly fine, Joe, waiting to see exactly what the police report and subsequent process reveals about what did or did not happen with Paul Pelosi. I will say if you've had more than a drink or maybe two, you just should not be driving, period. And again, I don't feel like this is way out of line to say if you're 82 years old, I think that there are questions about driving in general after a certain age, especially right. after a certain time at night. And even if you are perfectly within all of your faculties and and you are an excellent driver after a couple drinks, that's not true for anyone – Last point, Joe, and you can react. If you are a multi, multi, multi multi-millionaire like Paul Pelosi, we all have drivers now. It's called Uber. But this guy can have a designated literal round-the-clock driver, a chauffeur. I just don't understand how someone like that gets put into that position. There's even less of an excuse. Not that there's ever an excuse for doing something reckless like that. But if you're an extremely wealthy person, I feel like you – have even fewer excuses to make in the eyes of the public.
4: And, Guy, we're talking, when we talk about very, very rich, the Pelosi's are worth more than $100 million. To your point, you could hire a guy named Cheeves. They're out there, and they could be your own driver, right? Uh, But to your point, when you're above 80 years old, I'm sorry, I think you should have to take a driver's test again. Because, obviously, eyesight, hearing all that starts to fade, and and it's dangerous. Particularly, then, if these folks are so used to their whole life having a couple drinks, and they they think that, okay, I actually drive better when I'm buzzed. You always hear that excuse, right? And and it leads to this. But in the end, you can't can't take the money with you when you go to the pearly gates or elsewhere so you might as well spend a couple bucks to protect yourself and others if you decide you want to have a little merlot at dinner uh, and and I, I just think that here i hope that the press uh continues to follow this story because again if this was a conservative's husband or wife you know what that coverage would look like it would be the apocalypse
2: you actually said something interesting there i wonder what you would say or suggest as a matter of public policy like what's the age cutoff? because we've decided as a society depending on the state right People start to get their driver's permits and then licenses in the 15 to 17 range. I think there might be some places where it can be as low as 14, like out in rural areas on farms. I don't think you get your full license in certain places unrestricted until 18, but that's the age range. Is there an age range at the other end of life where you think that the process of getting your license – renewed should require some kind of a test like what age would that be 70
4: well 75 this is is different of course but airline pilots at the age of 60 must discontinue flying aircraft to carry passengers right that's a plane I understand it's a lot different uh I would say I would think 70 you know, it was fair that you have to take another test, and then again at eighty, I think that's 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 more than fair. Uh, but it's funny, like in Congress, uh, there, there's – even like
2: every five years, I, I don't think that that's yeah. a crazy thing. I don't know if my opinion would change on that when I get closer to that age than I am now. But also, I think just some self awareness about diminished capacity—that's no fault of anyone's. It's just how the aging process works. That that makes sense to me, and that's not you know I'm not trying to turn this conversation away from the Pelosi's or the problem that they might have, uh, you just sparked the thought with what you said, Joe, and I think it's interesting. And I know it comes up from time to time.
4: Yeah, and, and they should do the same in Washington, by the way, too, right? If you had an age limit on Congress <laughs> of, of 70, or listen to this stack because it blows me away. If you said the cutoff age is 70 until uh, uh, the time you could serve until Congress, and then you have to retire, right, 71% of Congress would be wiped out. Can you believe that? nearly three-quarters of Congress is over the age wow. of 70. Pelosi's 82. McConnell's 80. Biden's going to be 80 in a couple of months. Right. Trump runs. He'll be in his 80s if he wins. I don't know. I think maybe going younger could be a good thing. But I, I think, you know, that the lawsuits would fly well, if you started. If, no,
2: no, I don't think it's probably that. constitutional, but you could maybe do something like a test of people's overall mental capacity and acuity. Remember how Trump kept bragging? What was it? Third man, other. woman, camera, TV, whatever that thing was Yeah. like you know, basic civics questions. Maybe anyone running for office should have to pass the citizenship test before they can, before they can assume office. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's, that's probably not allowed but might be advisable. Look at Some Diane Feinstein, of that.
4: Right? Guy, guy, d- Dianne Feinstein, right, Diane Feinstein's 88 years old, and three Democratic senators went to Politico d- because they were so alarmed by the way she was acting. And I'm, I'm no longer joking, right, because we all have relatives or we know mm-hmm. somebody gets to a certain age, and unfortunately dementia does exist. Other things that happen when you're approaching your 90th birthday start to, to yeah, come into
2: play. she's really up there.
4: She's 88, yeah, so – yeah. You know, at, at what point can somebody tap her on the shoulder and say, I, I think maybe it's, you've done a great job and it's time for you to go, but it, she's still there as, as we speak about this, but yeah, when, when people talk about Trump and DeSantis, you know, I, I always say, give DeSantis a good strong look because the guy is in his 40s and it would be nice to have younger people uh, that have good experience mind you, uh, running things in government and he is in Florida and he's doing a great job, and I think I've gone completely off on a tangent right now, Guy okay?
2: uh, You have, yeah. I also think if DeSantis were to run for president and win, he'd be- in his mid 40s he reads older than that which I think actually helps him but he's a young guy with young kids and I think that would be one of the spoken or unspoken dynamics if he gets into it let's say with Trump if they're running against each other let's wait and see on that Joe I do want to ask you on the media side of things as you're a media critic you write a media column a lot of your time on Fox News is spent talking about media coverage of various stories This Uvalde school shooting that was the dominant story last week will continue to be a huge story this week. I was on Media Buzz with Howie Kurtz yesterday talking a lot about the media coverage. I sort of give some mixed grades here because I don't think that people are going overboard in terms of the amount of coverage. It is a huge, huge story, and it should be. I also can't fault journalists for getting emotional. It's hard not to, given what happened to all these innocent little kids. I can fault Some of the tone of the coverage, which always after a mass shooting event, seems to at least have elements of it that crosses a line into open advocacy. I just wonder what your overall assessment is of the media performance in the roughly one week since that horrible thing happened down in South Texas.
4: Let's take out the clips of The View, right, and Whoopi Goldberg said this, right, or uh, somebody nutty on MSNBC said that who is an opinion person, because, you know, we could very easily just do a little montage of those clips and say, see, the media is horrible. In this case, uh, I I think that the coverage has been sober. I, I think that it has uncovered a lot of details that you know, are still hard as a parent of two elementary school kids to process in terms of the police reaction uh, regarding the shooter, regarding a, a door being propped open. Uh, you know, Obviously, the police reaction taking uh, nearly an hour. Uh, it's it's should be it's the story of the year, maybe of, of the decade, quite frankly, given how horrific uh, this was. And it deserves the coverage that it's getting. And I think overall it, it has been measured. You're going to get your advocates in media, obviously, and, and there are many of them calling for gun control and, and banning of this weapon. Uh, but overall, if you eliminate those voices, if you're just talking about reporters on the ground, I think it's been an excellent guy.
2: What do you make of the argument? Because I wrote a piece last week at townhall.com, and I elaborated on it a little bit here on the show as well. Because I'm one of the folks out there saying we need to have serious conversations. They need to be respectful. Let's actually seek solutions that might require some compromises. And I think that saying those things puts some onus on me to describe what exactly I'm talking about. What would I personally be open to? Not that I'm all that important in this process, but if you're going to demand serious conversations, maybe you can give a roadmap of what that would look like in your own personal experience. So that's what I did. I wrote six bullet points that I thought might be worthwhile and something that I at least would be open to. One of them deals with the media, and I'm absolutely not suggesting that the government get involved in this with any sort of regulation of the press. But, Joe, I'm a big advocate that the press should regulate itself in this way. There is evidence from multiple bodies of research that some of these types of events are fueled by the copycat effect where people see all the attention lavished on someone who's done something horrific and atrocious and it sort of plants some seeds about you know going down in a blaze of glory or feeds delusions of grandeur or what have you so i think the media really should seriously consider a style guide or an official policy where a shooter or an assailant is named because it's relevant and there's you know an image of that individual shown maybe just to get that out of the way and then we do everything in our power to not name the individual by name and to limit their image being splashed across newspapers and screens because I feel like we should be spending almost no attention on glorifying and that's maybe the wrong word those people and instead honoring victims. There's a balance between reporting the news and giving people newsworthy information and going too far, and I think that that's something the media needs to grapple with. I'll give you the last word on that.
4: I a thousand percent agree with you on this and i always go back to that rolling stone cover in july of 2013 oh when yeah they put the boston bomber on there and they made, made the kid look like friggin a young bob dylan right and, and talk about glorification that was yes. exhibit a right there so i agree with you completely don't say the shooter's name until after the initial reporting uh put up a silhouette if you have to not even a picture nothing because you're right the copycat uh, aspect is, is very, very real. And uh, then my, my two points on, on solving, it doesn't solve it completely. I love how people like find like one little hole in an argument and say, say it's not foolproof, we can't go ahead with it. Raise the age right. of buying a gun to 21 because almost all of these mass shooters in, in elementary schools and in schools in general are under the age of 21. Can't buy a drink? Eh, guess what? You can't buy a gun and don't give me the military argument because those people are trained and supervised. So if you're in the military, sure, you could buy one before 21. Otherwise, unless you have the proper training, let's move the age up to 21 and let's put an armed police officer or military ex military in those schools, one entrance, in and out, and stagger the times that different grades go into the school to start and end their day. I think that would diminish the problem greatly. It wouldn't solve it. But hey, let's start to have a conversation, Guy, to your point. Let's yep, those, at least talk. those
2: are three three of the six points were just mentioned here that I'm at least willing to consider. And I'm glad that you put those out there as well. Joe Concha Fox News contributor, columnist at The Hill. Joe, we appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Guy. Have a good one. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next.
1: 1-2 to Rollin. Swing and a
4: pop-up. Katie over. She's got it! Get ready, Oklahoma! Here comes Northwestern. The Wildcats are returning to the Women's College World Series.
2: Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. That is, if you're listening on the broadcast, The Northwestern University fight song, Go You Northwestern, my alma mater. You know I'm a Cats fan if you listen to the show regularly. And it was a bit of a bumpy ride these last couple days in some of the spring sports. So on Friday's show, Northwestern's women's lacrosse team was playing up in Baltimore in the Final Four. They were playing the number one team in the country, UNC. And while we were on the air, last I had checked, they were up by seven goals going into the fourth quarter. 13-6, to I'm like, wow. I was looking at the finals in Baltimore on Sunday. I was trying to figure out could I drive up to Baltimore after doing media buzz with Howie Kurtz and watch the championship game. Then I checked the score later, and they lost. UNC went on an 8-0 run, outscored Northwestern 9-1 to in the last quarter. Oh, and the Cats lost. And the Tar Heels went on to win the whole thing. So that was a heartbreaker. And I called a few of their national championship wins at NU when I was an undergrad. They won back-to-back-to-back titles when I was in school. And they're still obviously very good, but, man, what a collapse. So, meanwhile, the softball team was in what they call the Super Regionals on the road playing Arizona State. It's a best two out of three, and the winner goes to the Women's College World Series in Oklahoma City where Northwestern had not been – were qualified for the WCWS since my senior year and in all 3 of the games over the weekend Northwestern trailed and in game 1 i think they were down 3 nothing they came back and they won game 2 they lost although it was extra innings and another thriller and in game 3 the deciding game to go to the world series they were down 5 to nothing on the road and they rattled off 8 consecutive runs They won. They're going back to Oklahoma City. Now they have to face, to start, number one Oklahoma. So OU, it's going to be a tough draw for the Wildcats, but it was absolutely so exciting. And they were just the comeback queens. Time after time, they've had a magical season. They're a really good team. The pitcher threw over 400 pitches in the weekend. 400. So congrats to the coaches, Drohan, sisters and the whole team, and hopefully they can go surprise some more people as Big Ten champions and now competitors in the Women's College World Series. Starts on Thursday. I'll be watching. Go Cats. We'll break. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show.
1: talking about the issues you care about guy benson
2: it is our final hour here on the guy benson show thanks for tuning in earlier on the program today byron york was here chief political correspondent the washington examiner fox news contributor breaking down a big development in the sussman trial and the broader probe from john durham involving the trump russia matter byron broke down what happened for us here's part of that conversation Well, you wrote a piece entitled What Durham Proved. And I want to ask you about that piece, although it's interesting what he apparently in the eyes of a jury did not prove was that Michael Sussman, this Clinton lawyer, lied to the FBI when he fed anti-Trump dirt. That was not true to the FBI and told them at the time he was not working for any campaign or client, although he clearly was at the time that acquittal coming down earlier today. I know that is getting trumpeted across a lot of headlines. John Durham, you know, a big initial miss, at least, in trying to bring some accountability on all of this. This lawyer was found not guilty by the jury. What is your read on the implication for the wider investigation when a, in my mind, fairly open and shut lying to the FBI charge did not result in a conviction sort of at the get-go here, sort of the, the very lowest bar to clear?
3: Yeah. um, Well, first of all, it it did seem open and shut to you and it seemed to me because uh, the question was whether Michael Sussman had lied to the FBI when he told them that when he was uh, trying to feed them this story about Trump, that he wasn't working for any client and whether that was a lie. And he certainly was working for a client, and he had told uh, James Baker, the FBI general counsel, in writing I'm not working I'm, – I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client. Well, anyway, there it is. So a lot of people talked about uh, the jury pool here in Washington, very left-leaning jury. There were three Clinton donors on it. I mean, the, the case was about Hillary Clinton dirty tricks, and there were three Clinton donors on it. Um, so but, um, the, the fact is Durham lost the case. And his first case, the kevin klein case uh was a pretty small matter a lawyer i mean it was, a lawyer made a serious um offense, but it wasn't that huge a case uh Klein pleaded guilty to it now Durham has lost this uh there's no uh case until the fall when Igor Danchenko, who was the sort of unwitting author of most of the ridiculous um, claims in the Steele dossier goes on trial also for lying to the FBI. So what does all this add up to? I think the most important thing is by far the fact that the public has found out more about what was going on. Uh, The public has found out how the um, uh, at least an arm of the Clinton campaign, trying to sort of weaponize the FBI uh, to use them against Donald Trump. Um, the the uh, public has found a lot more about uh, the dossier and how just absolutely laughably false it was, even as it sort of turned American politics upside down for a while. So um, if Durham never got another conviction, we have learned a lot from him.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, and we had Andy McCarthy on this show late last week, and he seemed to be thinking that it had been a rough few days for the prosecution and that Sussman's defense team was pretty likely to prevail. He thought that they were muddying the waters enough in terms of you know, how much was the FBI being forthcoming in some of this. So it seems like maybe some obfuscation on the part of multiple individuals or entities contributed to this not guilty verdict – I think there are some frustrated folks out there, Byron, thinking, okay, we're learning more, but if no one's really ever held accountable, then what does it matter? We we might get a big, fairly damning report from Durham at the end of all this. I would not be surprised by that at all. Is that unto itself a form of accountability if no one really is held specifically accountable? Or are there other forms of accountability beyond you know, convictions and that sort of thing? Because we know – from this trial specifically that Hillary Clinton individually, personally greenlit the spreading of some misinformation about Trump. That was what her former campaign manager admitted under oath. I mean, that is interesting and worthwhile information. I guess folks are just asking themselves, does that lead to anything? Does that get us anywhere?
3: Well, I think that public exposure is a form of accountability. As a matter of fact, I think um, in the past, um, we have sought – certainly partisans on either side have sought too much to see the other guy go to jail uh, mm-hmm. for what he did as opposed to being exposed. I think more will be exposed. I believe that Durham is actually required to write a report. He was instructed to do so by Bill Barr, the um Trump Attorney General who appointed him. So, I mean, that's going to be the big thing, is the Durham report. But, you know, in terms of people going to jail, um, I mean, did, you know, did George Papadopoulos need to go to jail for however long he did, 14 days or something like that? I, I, I don't think so. But um, I think it's it's good to find out what people did.
2: Meanwhile, Byron, I want to ask you about Politico's story today in Playbook saying inside Biden's June pivot to the economy. So, we're getting a lot of excitement in the Beltway and on Twitter and on cable news about this big pivot that the Biden folks are going to make in the next few days. They're all out there trying to get out front saying, look, the economy is actually good in a number of respects, and we're not getting enough credit for that. So, they want to turn that conversation around, it sounds like, a little bit. They want to maybe flip the script a little bit. And look, there's a few different things that you can say about that. I'll have a lot more to say about it later in the show. I think some of the positive things happening in the economy are happening despite the Biden administration and their policies and happening because of leadership of conservative governors, for example. It's also hard to make an argument to the American people. Actually, things are way better than you think if that's not what they're feeling, but Biden has an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today saying, you know, look, things aren't really so bad and I've got a plan. They are clearly trying to at least move the needle a little bit on the economy, which is currently really dragging down the president and his party. What do you make of this?
3: Well, I I had to laugh a little bit at the idea of of, of Biden pivoting to the economy. Um, You're right. That's what they say they're doing. Uh, Politico said the purpose of the June pivot appears... Threefold. And the first uh, fold is to convince skeptical voters that despite their current misgivings, the economy is actually doing quite well. I think this is an impossible task. You won't convince them uh, because they go to the grocery store and they think, well, how much was that, about $60 worth? No, it was $120 worth. Um, that just happened. So um, you're not going to convince
2: them. That full discussion with Byron York and all of today's show available online for free, no charge, on that podcast. The entire show on demand. It is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com, podcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, last night I saw the new Top Gun movie. I have thoughts. I will share them next. For the full interview and more, go to
1: GuyBensonShow.com.
2: Home stretch, Guy Benson show on this Tuesday. If you're listening on the broadcast, you're hearing just an epic song from Lady Gaga, Hold My Hand, which was sort of the end-of-the-movie theme in the new Top Gun called Top Gun Maverick. Came out over the weekend, and I'm not sure if that song will be as iconic as some of the original songs from the 1986 film. Like Highway to the Danger Zone, which, by the way, is featured, spoiler, minor, minor, spoiler, because it's like the first thing in the new movie. In case you were wondering, will there be any Kenny Loggins? Oh, yes. Right out of the gate, you get some Highway to the Danger Zone in the new movie. And then at the end, you've got that song by Lady Gaga, which just has an 80s sound to it, sort of one of those 80s anthem. It's a good song. We listen to it on the drive home from the theater. And in case I failed to do this, we do welcome you back to The Guy Benson Show. It is the Home Stretch segment. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. I am on special report tonight on Fox News coming up in the next hour. I just got a little excited talking about this movie. I'd heard all the hype. You probably have, too. You may have seen the blockbuster numbers it did at the box office. $156 million in the opening weekend. In the United States and Canada alone. That is a box office record for the holiday and a career best debut for Tom Cruise, which is kind of surprising because he's been in a lot of mega hits, but he's never had a hit more mega, apparently, than Top Gun Maverick. The first installment of this series came out when I was one. They were filming, I guess, when I was like in the womb. And here we are, more than three and a half decades later, and there's a sequel. Now, let me just say one quick thing. I've seen one of the criticisms of the movie that has nothing to do with the movie itself, but rather of Tom Cruise and his involvement, his very deep and prominent involvement in Scientology. I think you can enjoy a movie with Tom Cruise in it without endorsing or excusing any of the abuses that have been reported about Scientology, right? I think that that is sort of an unfair standard to put on the public, the viewing public, you know, and, and that is, I, I get it. There are some allegedly and proven very bad things that happen in that organization and Cruz is either aware or you could argue complicit in some of it. That is, I guess, part of the conversation about his career And his work product that he puts out. I'm willing to set that off to the side as I'm often willing to set things to the side in Hollywood that I disagree with in order to enjoy or not enjoy entertainment. I did see that there was that whole controversy about China wanting the Taiwanese flag and the Japanese flag taken off of Maverick's jacket. In the movie, both of those flags were on that jacket. Maybe they're censoring it over there. I also read that there was a Chinese-linked company, a Chinese-tied entity that pulled out of the movie or their support for the movie because they felt that it was too pro-America, too favorably portraying the U.S. military. And I guess they were right about that. It was very pro-America, and so I find it a very positive development. If there's something or someone tied closely to communist China and they were offended by this, then good. Now, just like in the first movie, America's enemy in this movie is very nonspecific. You don't even get a sense of where on earth this country might be. You don't see any of their military members close up. And when you do, they're in an airplane with a mask covering their entire face like one of those sort of pilot visors with the mask that goes completely over the face. So you don't even know what country it might be. It could be Russia. It could be Iran. It could be China. It's sort of you fill in the blank. It's a bad country. And the U.S. has a mission to try to destroy something dangerous that they're building. And it seemed to be almost impossible. And they bring back Tom Cruise's character, who's still Maverick, to try to train these younger guys and gals to see who can make the cut to be part of this mission. The soundtrack was awesome. It was beautifully shot. You just can't take your eyes off of it. I saw in one of the ads, the line says, see it on the biggest screen that you can. That was one of the reviews that they featured. I agree. Seeing it with that surround powerful sound on the big screen was absolutely worth it. And was it a little bit sentimental? Was there a lot of sort of calling back to the 1986 Top Gun movie? Yes. Was that a feature, not a bug, I think, for most people? Yes. Were some of the developments in the plot cliched and predictable? Yes. Very much so. There are a few times where I turned quietly to Adam and whispered exactly what was going to come next. And then, of course, it did. But did that diminish my enjoyment of the flick at all? No, it did not. And when the movie ended, there was a burst of applause in the theater. It was a feel-good, fun, well-shot, hell of an action movie that absolutely, I think, stands the test of time on a sequel this long after the first movie was made. They even had a tribute to the beach volleyball scene. Touch football on the beach with the new crop of attractive men running around in the surf, tossing around the football. Tom Cruise obviously just sort of defies age in some ways. And there were other very famous actors in the film as well. Val Kilmer appears, and he's been sick. He has been battling throat cancer, so he's unable to speak, and they work that actually into the plot which I thought was a lovely device and a tribute to him. And he's looking good. Miles Teller plays Goose's kid, who's now part of the new generation. That's a lot of the drama and tension in the movie. He did a nice job. Also, he's a big, in real life, long drink investor, so I had to sneak that in for the old sponsor here. It was just fun. More than anything, the word I would use is fun. From start to finish... I enjoyed myself. And yes, it was very patriotic. And yes, you're rooting for America. And yes, a lot of the tropes are familiar and I don't care if you see those as a problem. It really doesn't bother me. I've seen a few people talking about plot holes. Yeah. Yeah, there were some uh there were some plot holes, I would say along the way. But not so jarring that it took away from the experience. And sometimes you just shouldn't think too hard about a movie like this. The point is not hyper-realism. Although I've read some of the reviews that the, the scenes, some of which were shot in real F-18s and like sort of the effect of going higher and higher with the G-Force and going up to Mach 7 and then 8 and higher. Some of that was real, which is cool. But this was just like a a crazy, fun action movie. It's not that deep. It was very fun, and I'm not surprised it made $156 million in a couple of days, and it's going to keep doing very well because the word of mouth is awesome for a reason. So let me just add my voice to it. This is not an ad. No one's sponsoring this. It was just fun, and we had a good time. Then we got in the car. and We're driving home. You almost want to... Go way too fast and drive like a madman because that's what Maverick would do. It's like, nope, this is just the real world. Let's uh, defensive driving, get home safely. And we did. I recommend it. Very fun. Very, very fun. I wonder if Christine has seen it. This seems like a movie that was made for a cookie. She's like the target audience. She was probably, what, in her 30s back in 1986, roughly that. So a lot of nostalgia. Maybe we'll ask her when she's back. She's off today. I guess she needed to recover from the long weekend, if you know what I mean. But she should be back tomorrow when she's cleared her head. So we've got a lot to discuss with Christine. A little teaser for tomorrow's show. In the meantime, I'm off to television. Special report with Brett Baier, Fox News Channel, coming up in this next hour. See you there, back here on the radio tomorrow. Same time, same place. Have a good night.